Hi everyone, welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Amrita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and open banking fintech, Broncos. In this episode, we speak with Michele Ferrario, co-founder and CEO of Singapore-based wealth management fintech, StashAway. Michele talks about how founding StashAway was a blend of his experience in the finance and online retail sectors, the impact of COVID-19 on saving and investment in Southeast Asia, and the importance of culture in a growing fintech startup. Since interviewing Michele in July of 2020, StashAway has raised two rounds of funding, launched in the UAE and Hong Kong, and rolled out a new life insurance product. You can learn more about them by visiting stashaway.sg. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello everyone, my name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform and we are very happy to collaborate with the Green Room. It's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what the Green Room brings to you as a knowledge sharing base. You can find out more about Apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about Oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels, keynotes, uh, masterclasses that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there. It is my great pleasure to introduce Michele Ferrario, the founder and CEO of StashAway. Uh, so Michele, let's talk about you. You began your career uh, in consulting with McKinsey, uh, also in private equity uh, in both Europe and the US, uh, where you, you focused a lot on financial services there. And then uh, you jumped to join Rocket Internet, and that's actually where I want to start. For those who may not know, Rocket, Rocket Internet is a venture builder company, which basically takes successful business models and replicates them in other markets. Um, they're responsible for bringing us Lazada, Food Panda, Zalora, uh, among many others. So Michele, let's start there. How, how did you land at Rocket and then make your way to Singapore? So how did I land at Rocket? Is, so first of all, thank you. <laughs> so hi and thank you. And thank you for everybody that is uh, tuning in tonight. Um, how did I land at Rocket? Uh, I was uh, in private equity, as you mentioned. I had left McKinsey, I was in private equity, and uh, I was kind of getting bored until one day I got a call from a former colleague of McKinsey telling me that uh, she, had, she was actually my boss in a project at McKinsey. And she told me, look, I left McKinsey, and I, uh, she's German. I'm, I moved to Russia, and I'm building a company in Russia, and we're looking for somebody that builds the same company in Italy. And uh, do you know anybody? I'm like, oh, that sounds actually kind of interesting. And so long story short, <clears throat> uh, after not too much time, I decided to kind of leave private equity and join Rocket. And the main reason behind it is that I always felt I was a little bit behind the way. So I was at McKinsey 
uh, in the early 2000s, I thought that McKinsey was cool 10, 15, year, 15 years earlier, when, uh, especially in the large offices. So I was in Milan and New York, which are both very large offices. And so it was actually, I think, I, I thought it was much cooler, much more interesting 10, 15 years before I joined, when the office was smaller and they were only doing super strategic work. Then when I went to private equity, it was like in 2009, 10, 11, uh, I also uh, thought I was maybe 10 years too late. And so I thought kind of a joining or actually start, I founded Rocket Italy. So founding Rocket in Italy in late 2011, early 2012, uh, I thought it was the first time for me to actually be ahead of the wave. And the wave that I identified was called the internet. And I thought uh, it was going to change, you know, it was already changed a lot of things everywhere, but you know, Amazon opened an office in Italy in 2014, I believe. So it was uh, kind of very early days. And uh, that's, you know, that's how I started that. I thought, I thought it made sense. And to answer your second question on how did I land in Singapore? So uh, at Rocket, as I mentioned, I founded the Italian office and my job was to launch new companies. And I've launched two companies in Italy. I was then asked to do Pakistan. Uh, don't ask me why, it just happened. Uh, and, uh, and so I, I, uh, I founded three companies in Pakistan. Uh, and then uh, Rocket asked me to move to Singapore and take the leadership of one of the investments they already had in, in this region, a company called Zalora. So I was the group CEO of Zalora for around four years. That's how I landed in Singapore. That's amazing. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your time at Zalora and some of the things that you learned there? And then yeah, how so the that actually translated then to leaving Zalora and starting Stash Away? Yeah, so Zalora was an amazing experience uh, where you know, I think I learned a lot, both from things that in general Rocket does very well, as well as from things that Rocket does incredibly poorly. Uh, and uh, uh, when I joined Zalora, Zalora was around uh, nine, 10 months old and had 1,500 employees in seven countries. Uh, and uh, I was 31 years old and I was the CEO. So I was kind of miles away from my comfort zone and the situation was incredibly messy. Uh, you know, you can't imagine you know, 1,500 people hired in 10 months in seven different countries. You can imagine that there's no culture. Everybody's going in a different direction. You know, you know there is a, a lot of things to fix. And so it was, uh, it was a very interesting experience because I had this dual responsibility of trying to scale the company, which was at the time still quite small, while at the same time trying to make sense of the structure. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, and I think we did a, a decent job at that. I don't think we kind of, uh, did a perfect job. Uh, but I think we kind of, uh, we went into the right direction and by going into that, through that direction, I learned a lot of things. Uh, and, uh, how did this then translate into me leaving Zalora rocket and building and starting stash away together with my two co-founders, uh, is that, uh, I, you know, I found a, I thought it was a gigantic opportunity, uh, in uh, solving the wealth management issue in Southeast Asia. And I thought about it because I was a client of the banking system and I thought it was embarrassingly bad, my experience as a customer. I had two bank, I'm not gonna name the banks, but I had two bank accounts with two different banks. No, a local <laughs> one and an international one, so not all locals. And, um, and I was, you know, I, I just realized that it was just a sales channel to sell me expensive products. And, uh, and I thought that, you know, uh, the industry could do better. And uh, when I realized that there were robot advisors in the US, uh, Betterman, Wellfront, et cetera, I looked for a local robot advisor to invest my own money. I actually literally Googled robot advisor Singapore and uh, I couldn't find any. And that's when I started thinking, haha, maybe rather than selling t-shirts, I should help people build their wealth. 
And, uh, and uh, a few months later, I met Nina and Freddy and kind of things came together. And uh, there is a lot of learnings, honestly, that translate from Zalora to Stashway because obviously the topic is very different. One thing is to sell fashion online, uh, which is a very transactional type of, uh, type of uh, platform. And the other thing is to uh, kind of build long-term relationship with clients as you help them build the retirement plans. Uh, so very, very different. But at the same time, there is a lot of things that are similar in how you build an organization, how you uh, select and, uh, and motivate people, how, um, how you acquire customers and how you communicate with customers and how you are there for customers through kind of uh, client support. Uh, and so I think actually there is a lot of learnings that are applicable. And then, you know, the way I like to think about it is that my first half of my career was in financial services, second half was building consumer internet companies and stash ways the merge of the two. Yeah, that's so true. You've got the financial services experience in the West and then an e-commerce experience in, in uh, Southeast Asia, and you did use Stashway to sort of bring them together. So that's, that's really great. Tell us a little bit about, uh, a little bit more about Stashaway. I think many, maybe people in Singapore are familiar with, with Stashaway, but tell us a little bit about the organization and uh, maybe how it's a little bit um, different from some of the other robo-advisors that exist in the West. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Stashway is now a four years old company. Uh, we started in, uh, uh, in Singapore in the summer of 2016. Uh, we are now live in Singapore and Malaysia. In both countries, we are fund managers from a regulatory perspective. So we have a CMS license for retail fund management in Singapore. We are the first digital players to we are awarded such a license. And we are a, a digital investment manager in Malaysia and we were the first player to actually get the license in Malaysia. And we're currently in the process of actually uh, uh, getting the license and launching in three new countries. I'm not gonna name the countries, even if it's not completely secret, but I'll just, I'll, I'll pretend it's secret for a second. Uh, so we are uh, kind of uh, trying to exp expand. We are a fairly uh, kind of a, the size organization is not gigantic. We are 80 people right now. Uh, and, uh, and we want to keep it that way. So we've always, since the very beginning, tried to have a um, focus on quality over quantity. So we're trying to hire a few people of very high quality standards uh, and, uh, and enable them to take more responsibilities and, and, and drive things. So we're, uh, I'm trying to avoid getting to the Zalora situation of 1,400 people in seven countries going in any direction. So we're trying to kind of do the opposite and go. And I, I interview interns just to give you a sense. So, uh, so it's uh, to, to this day. Uh, so this is a kind of has been a gigantic focus of us as a founding team and myself particularly on hiring the right people, setting the right culture, etc. What we do is we help people, the way we describe it internally is that we want to empower people to build wealth for the long term. So Stashway is a wealth management platform that helps people build uh, the core product is diversified portfolios uh, that give exposure to global asset classes uh, at different level of risk. We also have a cash management product which we call Stashway Simple which in Singapore gives 1.9% on cash, and in uh, Malaysia, in Ringgit, gives 2.4% on Malaysian Ringgit, uh, which I think are by far the two best cash management products uh, in the two respective markets. Uh, how are we different, you mentioned, from uh, some of the uh, kind of uh, global players? I think uh, it, the value proposition is probably similar, uh, which is kind of helping people do the right thing with their money, with their savings. So invest, invest in a diversified way, very low cost, uh, with a long-term view, trying to uh, ideally attach a goal to each pool of money. Um, but I think what is very different is the market situation. Of course, uh, if you are a US player, 
your and you are a kind of a robot betterment or wealth front in the US, which are the two largest, uh, managing around 25 billion each. Your job is really to convince uh, people to move money out of Charles Schwab or Vanguard into their portfolios because 51% of financial wealth in the US is actually invested in securities already. And this does not include uh, 401ks, which is on top. While in this region of the world, money actually sits on bank accounts doing nothing. So our job is really to, to, to explain to people why it's important to get your money to work for you and to do it as early as you can when you have time to build your retirement plan. Only 19% compared to the 51 I mentioned earlier, so one nine uh, of, uh, of money in Singapore is actually invested for, from, uh, for households for household in securities. And that's obviously a tiny figure. And if you go to Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, actually those numbers are even smaller. Uh, and cash is 36% in Singapore, 42% in Malaysia, 44% in Thailand, 64% in Indonesia. So, uh, you know, 64% of people whose financial wealth in, in Indonesia is in cash. So you can understand, uh, cash meaning uh, bank accounts, uh, you can understand that there is a kind of a, a very different angle. And maybe, therefore, the most important difference between what we do and what, you know, how, or how we do things versus people in the West is uh, with a much stronger focus on education. So we have something we call Stashway Academy, which, uh, which we use to kind of educate people on a number of financial planning and investing topics. That's, that's amazing, Kelly. You're really, I think, bringing a really needed service to Southeast Asia and democratizing wealth management in a way that I don't know if anyone's ever seen before. And at a scale in Southeast Asia, that is just huge. And the reality is that when you use the word democratizing, which I agree with, you know, it's, I think it's a, it's a fair description, but uh, some people, by, by, by looking at that thing that we only, so that the product actually works uh, or is designed for people that have, you know, $50 a month to invest. But that's actually not true. So, uh, you know, we have clients with millions of dollars with us. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and actually, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I started the company because I thought about me as a customer that was underserved mm -hmm. by the banking system. And, uh, you know, and as a CEO of Zalora, obviously I had business savings. And, uh, and so we actually designed a product to, to cater for affluent individuals. And then uh, in the process, we decided to actually have a $0 minimum balance. And so de facto, we actually acquire a lot of customers that are retail from a banking, banking uh, logic. But in reality, most of our assets actually come from affluent individuals. Yeah, serving every part of the, of the customer base. Michele, I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, and talk about actually COVID's impact on savings and investment in Southeast Asia. I'm sure you can tell from my accent that I'm American and I've been reading tons in the news about uh, savings rates in the U.S. being at record highs during COVID, which is a little, you know, counterintuitive. So you've been in Southeast Asia for a while. You are obviously observing your customer behavior at Stashaway. Uh, so I just wanted to ask you, what trends are you seeing here in Southeast Asia when it comes to savings and investment? So I don't have official data, so I don't, I don't know whether overall savings are increasing or not during the COVID situation, but I can explain the U.S. data and maybe translate it also here. I mean, the, the U.S. data is, uh, you know, unemployment went higher, fair enough, but it went from, you know, 3% to 10%. The remaining 90% of people have been locked at home and couldn't spend money and therefore they saved more. Uh, and that's, I guess, why uh, savings went higher during the last, uh, during the last six months. I don't know, again, the aggregate data for Southeast Asia. Uh, uh, obviously, there is just less data availability. What we have seen uh, is uh, we have done very well throughout the period. We are significantly above budget for the year. 
uh, and uh, it's difficult to tell you how much of it is due to people saving more because of COVID, how much of it is due because we did very well through the market crash and therefore people trust the platform more, or how much is it due because people are bored at home and therefore they have time to actually look at their bank account and say, oh, I have too much cash, let me do something with it. So I don't know what are the components of this, uh, but it did feel that there was a significantly more engagement with our clients. So for instance, we in our Stashway Academy webinars, we have an incredible participation, like literally 10x what we used to have. Uh, so it looks like people are kind of looking at the topic of what to do with my money. Uh, and, uh, and yes, people are investing a bit more than we saw in the past. So probably there is also a saving effect. You know, if you can't go to the restaurants, you're saving $100. And if you do it for a few weeks, uh, that's a few, you know, that's $500. And if you do it for millions of people, that's actually a lot of money. So are you seeing differences in your data and like the types of things people are saving or are there differences among customer segments? I know you're serving a wide range of customers. Yeah, so maybe one difference that we see in, uh, in terms of also behavior during this period is that we do see uh, both in Singapore and Malaysia, but actually more in Malaysia than in Singapore, we do see people, some people withdraw money and put in as a justification, I need money because I lost my job. So that's something we see, and usually those are smaller amounts. So we see people kind of withdrawing uh, small, kind of smaller balances, uh, and and uh, obviously that's uh, kind of the part of the population that has been the most affected by uh, by the current lockdown and the situation and and the effects on the economies. Uh, while obviously the more affluent customers, you don't see real changes in behavior. Now, one thing we've seen that may be interesting is uh, that during the course of March. We've seen, so when the markets really dropped, uh, we've seen actually uh, affluent customers uh, withdrawing from our cash management product because they had margin calls in the banks. So, so what you see is that, you know, people were trying to sell whatever they could find uh, liquid and, you know, our cash management product is, is liquid. And so we actually saw people just selling stuff because they had to cover margin calls for leverage products at the banks. Uh, that lasted for a couple of weeks. The two central week of March, where we, kind of, we saw that behavior, we talked to a few clients and we understood that was the reason. Uh, it was an interesting experience. And obviously that talks to a little bit of a, the higher part of the market. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess similarly, has Stashway adapted uh, any of its product offering or changed its strategy in response to COVID? Uh, we did a change in asset allocation uh, in the middle of May. So, so throughout the actual, so the market crashed in late February and until the 23rd of March. So 23rd of March was the bottom. And I'm talking about S&P 500 as a kind of proxy for the market. Um, and we didn't react through the market crash because it was, uh, it was very fast. And in practice, the market priced immediately a very deep recession. So, uh, so I kind of, uh, we ran a very systematic um, uh, way of managing money. We tried so we don't make any human calls and maybe a human would have probably sold at a certain point during the crazy crash, but kind of the numbers were saying that the market were pricing something more than what was happening, especially with the Fed intervention. And so, uh, and so after the Fed intervention, we stated, so we didn't change anything until mid-May. And in mid-May, what we did is that we've actually reduced uh, US exposure to all, we did a, what we call a re-optimization. So we have reduced US exposure uh, in all of our portfolios. Uh, reduce slightly um, risk or better said, we kept risk at every uh, risk level constant, but assume made capital market assumptions that, uh, that implicitly assume 
for rockier times ahead of us. Uh, and, um, and that so far has been a good call because uh, obviously the reducing US exposure, increasing Asia exposure in the last month and a half obviously produced uh, incredibly good results, especially because the US dollar depreciated by around four or 5% in the, since we did it. Uh, and so that actually helped us uh, kind of sustain very good returns in the last, uh, last 60 days. But honestly, you can't judge a fund manager on 60 days. You need to wait for another five years. Right, right. Do you think the behavior that you're seeing during COVID among your customers and even, even your strategy, if it's the start of a longer term trend or it's just a blip on the radar? Is COVID going to go away and we're going to go back to doing things the way they were? Are customers going to go change their, change their behavior back? Or do you think this is prolonged? We're going to see customer behavior stay the same for a while. In our case, I don't think we have seen significant changes in behavior, to be honest. Maybe the only one, as I mentioned, is the willingness to consume content through webinars and uh, you know what we're seeing tonight right so and that's exactly what we're doing tonight so this is i guess the uh, the biggest change we have seen so uh, but from other perspective people have most of our clients have continued to dollar cost averaging into their products throughout the ups and downs and throughout the crisis the same way that they did uh, in 2019 uh, so from our perspective we haven't seen any big change we, we've seen as i mentioned kind of an acceleration but that's an acceleration that we've seen also last year so i'm not sure i want to uh, kind of uh, tie it up to uh, to COVID. Uh, the extra savings we mentioned earlier due to kind of a less activity offline hopefully they will go away meaning that it means that people actually will will go will go out start spending which is probably good for everybody anyway uh, so um, i don't i don't think that will will last for long i think uh, uh, maybe on a different topic, one thing that we are looking at as a company is uh, how to uh, change our policies with regard to working from home and remote working. Uh, and uh, so we are actually uh, we are actually finalizing a, a new policy that is uh, significantly more open and relaxed about where you work than uh, than we used to be, because we simply realized that you know the last few months uh, we were able to be completely productive. Uh, and while obviously there needs to be some rules in place to make sure that, you know, uh, we don't lose uh, the ability to brainstorm and also that we don't lose the ability to uh, kind of uh, catch up with each other. But at the same time, uh, there might be reasons for people to decide to work from home or, or to do some parts of the week from home or maybe a week every month from home or maybe three months a year in Bali for whatever reason or in Germany. Uh, and, uh, and we want to be able to, uh, to allow for that. Yeah, that's great. And as someone who's also working on a remote team 100% of the time, uh, I, I think what you're doing is great. Uh, we'd love one of those policies as well. I'm, I'm curious in your opinion, uh, especially someone that's you know, caught a bunch of, uh, these wa of these waves of innovation, um, what are some companies that have exemplified success during the lockdowns, during COVID? And which companies do you think are positioned to succeed hereafter? Hmm, good question. Um, I mean, there are some obvious answers on uh, companies that enable life in lockdown. So from Zoom, as we are currently uh, showcasing, to uh, e-commerce, obviously. So, you know, uh, companies that have actually that are in industries that help uh, survive or, or, or thrive uh, during this uh, period. So that's, that, that, I would say they've been simply lucky, right? They were just doing the right thing at the right time. Um, I think uh, uh, companies that have, I've seen, I'm thinking if there is companies that have pivoted 
quickly in order to uh, to help you. I think Google actually has done uh, an amazing job on, uh, for instance, Google Meet becoming a Zoom compare, like improving the Google Meet product very quickly, uh, and therefore becoming a Zoom competitor. Uh, I think actually they've done uh, they've done very well. Uh, in terms of small uh, kind of a more financial services or fintech companies in Southeast Asia, I would struggle to tell you uh, kind of to actually differentiate. I think in general the financial services have been I guess less affected by uh, by what's happening. I think the banks are actually doing okay. Uh, we'll, let's see what happens to their loan portfolio uh, in the next year or two. But so far, I don't think they've been particularly affected by uh, kind of a, by the lockdowns, etc. So, I, to be honest, I wouldn't be able to uh, to point out kind of companies that have reacted particularly well. To, uh, to to kind of to the situation, other than the ones that were just in their perfect situation, you know, the food delivery companies, the e-commerce company, the the remote meeting companies, etc. Right place, right time. Got it. Yeah, I mean that's that's be, I would say it's most more, more lack than strategy. I would guess. Yeah, yeah. And do you, and you think those are the, those same companies are positioned to succeed afterwards? I think some of these will remain, as I mentioned. So I think uh, you know Zoom, and uh, that, uh, it depends on how you define succeed. So I don't wanna, I don't want to say that Zoom is a stock you need to buy. I don't believe in stock picking anyway. Uh, but you know I'm not. I don't know you know how much of it is priced in. But definitely, I think uh, uh, after after we go back to normal, uh, I think the number of people using Zoom regularly will be much higher than the number of people that used to use Zoom in January this year. Uh, it's going to be lower than it is now, but higher than what it was in January. So I think uh, this will definitely remain. And same for uh, for kind of Google Meet, etc. Same for maybe food delivery. I think some people have, uh, uh, I think, uh, kind of uh, discovered food delivery and maybe or maybe the you know Redmart in Singapore, you know, the online supermarket. I think people that used to go to the supermarket and then now have tried Redmart, maybe they're going to stick with that. Uh, so I think that some of them will will get a bump that remains there. Um, and uh, you know, but it is to be seen how you know how much of that bump will remain. Mm -hmm. One one specific subset of fintech companies that I'm that I'm interested in and would love your take on are actually some of these gold savings companies that we've seen pop up all over Southeast Asia during maybe shortly before COVID. Um, what's your take on those companies? Do you think there it, it's just a reaction to COVID and? Uh, insecurity in the market, or do you think these are these companies are positioned for success going forward as well? So my personal pers so I, I understand why gold saving companies are kind of initially successful in this region. Uh, uh, I know there is a you know there is a history and a kind of a cultural history of using gold as a kind of a way of saving money. Uh, I I would. I don't think the whole uh, maybe COVID uncertainty will change that too much. Maybe there has been some kind of a increase in growth recently, but I don't think it's uh, something that will sustain forever. And broadly speaking, I think uh, uh, there are better ways, to be honest, to get exposure to gold, in, easier way to get exposure to gold investing that don't, don't require uh, investing through these companies. So I, I'm not a, I'm not super, uh, convinced that this will be a long-term trend but this is personal point of view i may be wrong and you know and when i say there are better ways to invest in gold i mean i think the, the easiest way to invest in gold is actually buying gold etfs which are very low cost very easy to buy and sell uh, and uh, very easy to put in a portfolio 
Thank you. I want to I want to now look um, look at Stashway again and like looking forward and talk about some of your future plans. What other exciting things are you working on that we should keep an eye out for? I think the one so on top of the three countries, the one other big things that we've been working on for quite some time and it's actually been recently uh, launched is a Stashway Workplace. Uh, if somebody wants to check it out, it's workplace.stashway.sg, which is our solution to corporates. In practice, we empower employers to help their employees uh, uh, with their kind of financial, uh, kind of financial uh, health. And in particular, there are, I would say, two angles to it. There is a, uh, a, a financial education angle, which in practice is a, kind of the corporate side of Stashway Academy, very similar logic on uh, kind of doing uh, unbiased education on the basics of financial planning and investing for employees of a given company. We do that for free as part of the second leg. And the second leg is enabling companies to build pension plans uh, for employees as well as in incentive plans. And for instance, in Singapore, uh, that may uh, solve the problem of uh, uh, supple supplementing CPF for experts, uh, which is a problem that a lot of MNCs or uh, in general companies that employ foreigners uh, have because uh, they sometimes they give cash in lieu, sometimes they don't give anything and it's unfair. And so we're kind of solving that problem. And in other countries, uh, is actually because there is no CPF or EPF, which are kind of the two large uh, government-managed pension plans in respectively Singapore and Malaysia. In other countries, the, uh, the pension system is actually left a bit more to the individual and to the corporates. And therefore, uh, Stashway Workplace will actually kind of uh, help those companies, for instance, in Thailand, uh, where uh, there is a Providence Funds uh, requirements for, uh, for corporates. That's really exciting, and is that already in the market? It is already in the market, and we have a team that is talking to kind of a, a, quite a few uh, clients. And uh, if anybody's interested, you can either reach out to me or go on uh, workplace.stashweb.sg where there is a form where you can leave your name. I, I actually had another question for you around you know choosing to go with a B2C model uh, instead of a B2B model, but I think with uh, Stashway Workplace. I think you're covering all of the bases, which I think is great. Yeah, so what we have decided to do early on is not become a tech provider to, uh, to the banks. So usually when people talk about B2B for a, for a company like ours, they mean building technology to be sold to the banks. That obviously has, you know, it's a business model and has its pros and cons versus going B2C. We decided to go B2C because we thought that the gap in the market was very large and we thought that the gap in the market was partially produced because the banks we're just making too much money uh, in uh, uh, kind of a selling unit trust with two and a half percent entry fees and insurance product with three percent uh, fees. And so we thought that if we actually were to go through the banks, that delta value proposition would be somewhat diluted. And that's why we decided to actually do go straight to market. Kind of um, talk about uh, the difficulty maybe of actually going kind of making live projects with, uh, with, uh, with financial institutions. We have actually had a few discussions in the past two, three years with a few financial institutions that approached us and asked us whether we wanted to partner. While it's not our core business, we you know, were always open to have this kind of conversations. But the reality is that as soon as conversation goes down to financials and people realize that our fees are one third of what the banks usually charge, uh, then the pie is just too small for the banks to share. So the discussion just drops there. Yeah, it's kind of a conflict of interest for them. That makes sense. Would love to hear your thoughts um, on the Robinhood trading behavior in the U.S. And do you see such a platform coming to Southeast Asia? 
So, I mean, Robinhood, for those people that may not know, Robinhood is a, is a brokerage and it's uh, actually a kind of a free brokerage, that's why it's called Robinhood. Uh, obviously, they do make money in other ways. Uh, so, you always need to remember that whenever you don't pay for a, serve, for a, for a product, you are the product. Uh, and, uh, and I guess that's exactly the case for free brokerages. Uh, I don't know the details of what happened. I read some of the stories and obviously the most infamous one is the 19 years old that actually committed suicide because he thought he lost 700,000 US dollars, which actually he didn't lose. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and I think that, you know, obviously all you know, when you touch people's money, you have a very big responsibility. And so your communication needs to be very careful and your, the way you display data is, needs to be very careful. And internally, especially when kind of this uh, infamous uh, kind of a tragedy happened, we actually shared that internally and tried to do, build a little bit of a case study to explain to people once again how important it is that whenever we release a new feature, a new product, a new communication, uh, we need to really think about the way we display things because in this case, really the tragedy was caused by apparently something that was uh, communicated not in a, in a, in a very uh, kind of a effective way. The guy thought he lost $700,000 and actually didn't. Uh, to the second part of the question of whether uh, there's going to be platforms like this in Asia, I think there is a, you know, eight securities operating out of uh, Hong Kong that has uh, kind of a, has been built on the modeling uh, modeling Robinhood has been recently acquired by SoFi, so I'm assuming they're going to try to expand uh, to in, in the rest of Asia. Uh, and uh, so I, you know, I think I don't know if Robinhood is also expanding to Asia, but yes, I do expect some of these kind of free brokers uh, to come uh, to come to these shores as well. Great, thank you. In Singapore, I think especially, actually in Malaysia as well. How will the new digital banks affect your business? Do you see them as partners, competition? Um, yeah, how, is, does, how does that affect your business? Yeah, they can be both a partner or competition. And uh, we have been approached by a few of the candidates. And uh, while again, it's not our core business model to kind of uh, look for B2B partnership, this will be a B2B partnership. It is something we're open, open to. Uh, and uh, we have been approached and we will continue to uh, entertain conversations uh, with some of them. I think others will probably over time become uh, you know, uh, somewhat of a competitor. To be honest though, I think uh, we made a conscious decision of being specialized in helping people build and manage their wealth uh, rather than having a transactional business or a lending business, which tends to be maybe more profitable uh, in or more sizable, let's say actually in terms of revenues. Uh, but we decided to be specialist in one specific niche, which is the one of wealth management. And we think that it's going to be very difficult for anybody to be honest to kind of uh, give better service on this specific niche uh, uh, versus versus us and we have the luxury of a bit of a time advantage so uh, we now have built our brand a lot of people uh, actually trust uh, trust what we've done and i think uh, it's not going to be easy for new players to actually take away that trust you know kind of taking your rocket model of taking something that's worked in one market and uh, going to another for someone considering starting the stash away of the Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, uh, any of the other countries in Southeast Asia, how would you recommend they go about that? I recommend they don't go about it. No, jokes aside. <laughs> uh, no, jokes aside. So I think uh, you need to look at the country by country. I think um, uh, the reason I'm not launching in country immediately right now in countries like Indonesia, Philippines, and Vietnam is twofold. On one side, I think the market is not ready. 
uh, I think uh, the, this is a product for white colors, and I don't think there is a lot of white colors with a lot of savings in any of these markets, maybe with the exception a little bit of uh, Indonesia. Um, but uh, secondly, and I would say even most importantly, uh, the regulators are not ready. And so in order to build a product that actually fulfills the regulatory requirement, you're gonna be forced to build a product that is not really good. Which is the reason why we decided to, you know, I just mentioned it earlier, we decided to launch in Thailand or to go to Thailand first rather than one of these countries because we thought the market is more developed and, uh, and the regula regulation uh, is also uh, more open. Uh, so we are taking an approach. So to whoever, whoever wants to do that, I think they need to take a very close look at regulation, what they can do and cannot do uh, and whether they can build a world-class product with that. There are a couple of kind of uh, players that go kind of provide same, somewhat similar services uh, uh, to what we do in Indonesia, but because of regulation, they are forced to actually build portfolios look, using local assets. So Indonesian assets, which honestly, I think defeats the purpose. I think, uh, you know, it doesn't solve the problem. So every, you know, every country is a different game. And that's, I guess, the beauty of Southeast Asia. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and uh, you can see it both ways. One side is a gigantic pain in the neck. On the other side, once you solved it, it's, uh, it's a great barrier to entry for potential competitors. And uh, because regulations are actually different across countries, you need to go into the details of each of the countries and understand uh, what you can and cannot do and how you need to change your model, uh, for instance, your custody structure or how you need to, you know, or maybe there are some regulation about uh, uh, kind of capital, local, cap local currency protection. So how much can you move money out of, in and out of the country and there is a taxation differences, et cetera, et cetera. So it's actually very, very complex. I always tell my team that the willingness and ability to solve very complex problems is actually a competitive advantage. Uh, and in this country, in this region in particular, because there is so many complexities that uh, the willingness to just go into the details of trying to understand those problems and try to solve them, uh, I think it does, uh, it does create value. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is actually a question from Todd, but I'm going to read it. Um, what technologies do you use for your investing operations and what would you like to have? Uh, do you need to email any spreadsheets back and forth with your fund management partners or anything like that? No. So we, uh, we try to do everything through APIs, wherever we can. So the investment technology, we actually, it's built in-house. So the whole uh, uh, kind of investment, the execution system, let's call it, is actually, we built it. And then it connects through APIs with the brokers. Uh, we work with Saxo as a broker, uh, but we could work with another broker similarly. And, uh, um, and that's, so that's done through APIs. So there's no manual process, no emails, no faxes, no nothing. Uh, the only processes that are actually still manual are the SRS processes. So SRS is a supplementary retirement scheme in Singapore. It's a scheme that uh, gives some tax, uh, uh, kind of tax savings to people that actually promise to keep the money invested for a long time. It's a, it's a Ministry of Finance project. And the three gatekeepers are DBS, OCBC, and UOB. And unfortunately, uh, we need to communicate with them through fax. So that's the, so when, when we had to do it, there were a few people in my team that saw a fax machine for the first time in their lives. Um, and uh, so that's, that's one process. And then the other, uh, yeah, that's amazing. I say, it's a comment from Todd saying, that's amazing. Yes, there is 12 billion Singapore dollars in the SRS systems and it's managed by fax. 
it's kind of scary, more than amazing. Uh, and uh, the uh, the second piece where we are still using some some more manual operation is again connecting with the banks. So there are certain things that we actually uh, uh, were were not able yet to completely automate in terms of API connectivity with the banks, and that's partially because the banks are closed and partially because uh, we deprioritize it. Thank you, Michele. One last question for you. I've seen that Stashway is actually doing quite a lot of hiring right now. I've seen your LinkedIn posts. If someone wanted to get a job at Stashway, could you tell us a little bit about your uh, your hiring approach? Is because as you mentioned before, uh, it sounds like a kind of a tough screening process. So maybe we'd love to hear about that. Uh, yes, I mean we put a lot of attention and invest a lot of time in uh, hiring. Uh, I personally probably spend two, three, at least two hours a day interviewing people. Uh, wow. and, uh, and the process is, I mean, it's, a, it's a simple process of a number of interviews with a bunch of different people, depending on the role, the, the type of people will, will be different. Um, the, what we look for is most importantly, uh, attitude and potential uh, more than experience. Uh, and this is in general. So we want somebody that has the right can-do attitude that is a, uh, transparent, that is a, a kind of high energy, that wants to get stuff done, that is ambitious, that is willing to go the extra mile, that has a sense of ownership. So that's one part. And the second part is just a kind of a pure brain power and willingness to learn and ability, and ability to learn faster. Uh, this is true for all roles. And then for certain roles, of course, we're looking for some specific experiences. For instance, uh, you may have seen uh, earlier today, I've shared that we are hiring a, a group chief compliance officer, which is a a, uh, 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 which is kind of a, a very rare occasion to join a company like ours at the C-suite level. And then, of course, for that role, we're also looking for somebody that has at least 10 years of experience in managing regulatory compliance for, um, uh, for financial institutions, either banks or an asset manager. I saw a question whether I, I do a McKinsey type of, uh, uh, of uh, case studies during an interview, and yes, I do. Uh, I wouldn't call it McKinsey, McKinsey case. I think it, I simplified a little bit uh, just to make it faster. But I've tried different. Uh, I've tried during the course of my career. I tried different approaches to interviewing, and I just realized that the only way for me to understand whether I would enjoy or not to work with another person is to pretend I'm actually already working with the other person. And the case study gives me the chance to just pretend we're having actually a problem-solving session. Let's see how it goes. And so I find it uh, personally kind of uh, the easiest way for me to kind of get a feeling of whether I would like or not to work, to work with another person. Uh, other people in the organization, so we don't have a structure that we don't force everyone to use the same structure. We think, because uh, I've been forced before to use other people's recruitment logics, and I realized that for me it didn't work. So I don't want to force people uh, to do that. And I think actually having different angles and different people that interview in different ways actually at, at the end of the game produce a better result. And maybe this is a question for me, Michele, uh, but how does this hiring approach fit into the broader stash away culture that you're creating? Um, so I think, you know, uh, culture for me is a super important topic. And the reality is that 99.8% of a company's culture is uh, driven by who you hire and who you fire. Uh, and, uh, and so that's why, that's exactly the reason why I spend so much time uh, interviewing people and I spend so much, I, I put so much attention in hiring. And so 
to your question, I think hiring is the one pillar of uh, building culture because, uh, you know, deciding who you want on the bus and who you want off the bus, which is a quote from, uh, I think, good to great, uh, is, uh, is the most important thing if you want to build the right culture. Um, and then the hiring process, I think, is also a way to showcase the culture. You know, as you speak to three, four, five people within the organization, you realize kind of how we've asked the question, what, uh, what is the type of experience you have? And that's, I think, a, a representation of, uh, uh, of our culture. We also have a culture paper that we share before all the interviews to make sure that people actually know what they're kind of going into. That's amazing, that's amazing. Sounds like a fun place to work. Um, so it's, fine. it's a hard working, but I, I, I'm having fun. You know, you should ask me. <laughs> work should be fun, I agree. I can say the same for my team at Grab, but um, yeah, Stashway sounds like a great place to work. Um, probably because, you know, you're, you're at, the, at the lead. Michele, last question for you. If folks want to learn how to invest or learn more about Stashway, how should they find more information? Yeah, so it's it's called Stashway Academy, and uh, what you need to do is uh, either Google Stashway Academy or simply go uh, or download the app, uh, the Stashway app, and there is an Academy tab where there is also all the um, uh, kind of uh, all of the next webinars and uh, including also video on demand. You can or the other things you can do is actually go on the Stashway website, and uh, there is a button, kind of one of the uh, button on the top right is called Learn. And underneath that, there is actually a bunch of links. There is a link to our podcast, which is called In Your Best Interest, which is about, again, uh, kind of how to invest, uh, talking with a few experts. There is a, a link to written content, and there is a link to uh, kind of the calendar of, uh, of Statue Academy webinar events. Uh, if you want to watch video on demand, you need to download the app. They're only available on the app. I think that's about all we have time for today. Uh, so, Michele, thank you so much for joining us to speak about wealth management and savings uh, in the time of COVID in Southeast Asia. Best of luck with all of the new initiatives and thank you uh, to the audience for joining us today for the second episode of The Green Room. Um, please write to us with your comments. Um, you know, we'd love to hear from you and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Amrita. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any FinTech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Green Room with Amrita Veer. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates. You can also visit amritavir.com to get more information, join our mailing list, and just reach out to us. You can also write to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.